morning if you're in Latin America and uh, good afternoon, good evening if you're in other parts of the world. Uh, thank you so much for joining this e-dialogue on the, what future for small-scale farming. We're holding this on behalf of the Sustainable Development Solutions Network, Foresight for Food, IFAD and APRA. I'm Jim Woodhill. I'm the lead of the Foresight for Food initiative based in Oxford in the UK. Foresight for Food is working to strengthen foresight and scenario capacities uh, for food systems transformation. Um, <clears throat> this, this whole series started back in July. We had a kickoff session then to look at some of the bigger pictures around small-scale farming and the future of food systems. And then we had a local, local perspective session in August. Uh, today and tomorrow, we're holding a series of sessions across uh, Latin America, East Asia, South Asia and, and Africa, trying to explore what are some of the, the differences across the regions around the role of small-scale farmers. And we'll have a synthesis session tomorrow afternoon. And then in November, we'll be having two extra sessions one on pathways of transformation and another session will bring it all together in terms of what are some of the bigger policy challenges. Apologise for apologising for some of the rescheduling we've had to do due to unavoidable circumstances around COVID and, and other issues. This e-dialogue is really uh, put into the context of the wider discussion around transforming food systems and some of the enormous challenges we face in terms of both nutrition, continuing to tackle poverty, and also the impacts of climate and, and environmental issues. We know that uh, small scale agriculture is absolutely critical for the livelihoods of many, many rural people. But at the same time, we also understand how much some of the bigger issues of, of uh, food systems and food markets are really rapidly changing. And we also see a tremendous change in the sort of diversification of household incomes and needing to recognise that uh, small scale farmers are actually a very diverse group of people. So partly what we'd like to do in this discussion um, <clears throat> this morning, Latin America, is to, um, to really unpack some of these differences, some of these challenges, and explore what you see as some of the pathways forward for enabling small-scale farmers to tackle ongoing issues of poverty, inequality, and leaving people behind. On the other hand, the role that they can play in contributing to uh, a more nutritious and sustainable food system. Um, so with that, um, let me, let me move on to uh, asking our panel to begin with some of their uh, insights. Uh, what we'll do is ask each panelist to give a few minutes of their own perspectives. Each of them have selected um, some thoughts around the key issues that are behind this session. And then we'll move into a general, a general discussion and try to draw together some of the thoughts. And towards the end of the session, we'll be giving each panelist a chance to, to draw out a couple of their, their key, key messages. Please, if you've got any questions you'd like answered, put them in the um, text box on the side of Zoom and we'll bring those to the attention of the, of the panelists. So with that, um, let me uh, pass over to Milena. Um, I'm going to ask each of the panelists to introduce yourselves if you if you wouldn't mind you'll do a better job than I will and it'll it'll save time. Um, Milena, over to you. Hi, uh, good morning in Latin America. Hello to everyone. I, I am Milena Umaña, sociologist with a master's degree in applied agriculture and forestry science uh, for the Swiss School of Agriculture. 
I am a researcher at the Latin American Center of Rural Development called REMISP uh, at the Colombian office. Uh, first of all, thank you for the invitation and for being connected with us from different parts of the world. Uh, I just want to say as my opening perspective that I am very pleased to, to speak about the challenge, but most uh, of all about the potentials of the small scale agriculture in Colombia and, and the region of Latin America. Um, and uh, although they have a lot of difference across the countries, that depend of the features of uh, and history of each country and, and its relationships with the physical and geographic environment. Uh, they also have many common aspects that can give us a picture about the future and potentials to overcome poverty in some cases and continue to consolidation, their consolidation path as food providers for the region in, in a moment when, because of COVID and a lot of other crises around the world and many other aspects we are facing uh, probabilities of, of food scarcity, then I am sure this dialogue will be very productive in, in, this, in this way, uh, give us some new ideas and, and perspective about different countries in Latin America and that you can compare as well with other parts of the world and, and other dialogues going on with this uh, very important initiative. And thank you again for inviting me. And yes, to respect my three minutes, I, I will stop there. Maybe just a brief, maybe just a brief follow-up question there, Elena. I mean, how important do you see small-scale agriculture in the sort of future development of Latin America at the moment? Because you know the numbers of small-scale farmers have reduced a lot. There's a lot of other activities going on, and and some might argue, well, you know, is how, how important are they really to continuing to tackle ongoing inequality and poverty and nutritional issues across the region? Uh, I think uh, according to, to FAO and a lot of, of studies in, in the region, small-scale farming is extremely important, not only for food production and nutrition, but as well for the diversification of local economies and the, and the rural areas, uh, because they increase the demand of service and products and contribute as well to the workforce in non-agriculture activities in, in, the, in the rurality. Uh, it's not a secret that, for instance, in Colombia, we have a, a long time conflict in the rural areas that have totally changed our, our rural world. And uh, for sure, the small scale agriculture has still uh, been on their work to provide us food, uh, good food, uh, and and they are challenged a lot of of um, of goals and challenges with climate change and their capacity and resilience is very uh, impressive. Um, I think in in this in this way uh, the um, environmental constraints and and climate change will be considered as, as factors determine the productive dynamics of a small school agriculture. Uh, but uh, for me, it's very important and I, I want to, to underline their capacity to overcome these uh, problems, these uh, challenges and their capacity to resilience and continue to provide us 
uh, food in in some in, in some countries in in conflictive context and in in areas where the the capacities and the public uh, roads are not the optimal. Thank, thank, thank you, Klaus. Over to you, and I mean, taking us to the big picture perspective from IFAD that's really focused on tackling issues of rural poverty. Now, how are you seeing uh, small-scale agriculture and its future, and how that links into the IFAD agenda across the region? Right, Jim. Many thanks for this. Um, and uh, well, my introduction would be that my uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm the country director for IFAD, the International Fund for Agricultural Development in Brazil, and I'm also heading the uh, Center for South-South Technical Cooperation and Knowledge Management here in, in Brasilia. Um, for us, uh, the investments in small-scale agriculture are really important because we see that um, they are providing very many useful services to, to society at large. It's not just producing food, as Milena was saying. And I also think that it's very important that small-scale farmers are uh, basically the, the guardians of biodiversity, not only um, of the, um, the cultivated species uh, which people are eating and the, um, the species of, of animals which they're keeping, which is very important for agriculture in, in the future in general, um, because we can see that the agribusiness side, uh, which in, in Brazil is very strong, is really concentrating on very few uh, varieties and species and, and is providing an environment in which other species do not thrive or cannot survive at all. So this is really important that they're providing this uh, service to the society and, and uh, to all um, survival at large. Um, I, I want to uh, look at your question from um, an angle of the markets, because obviously um, it's very important that, that these uh, small-scale producers are really providing most of the food, which is, which is reaching the tables of uh, people in Latin America. America, um, because the large-scale farming is mainly for export, um, and and the the local uh, consumption mainly stems from small-scale producers. Um, we see uh, that that basically also through the um, the pandemic, um, there have been a couple of changes in the way uh, in which the demand for food manifests itself. Um, I see mainly two big trends. On the one side, uh, you have the consumers which are very, which are very quality conscious, um, which are demanding fresh and safe uh, local food, often knowing their producers and with some sort of certification, sometimes even organic. Um, and on the other side, we see that many consumers especially those who've had their income greatly reduced, are looking for low prices and they want readily available cheap food. Um, and this is these are two big trends which uh, also small-scale farmers need to respond to. At the same time, we see that uh, many, small, many uh, consumers um, are now buying more processed food and much less fresh food also by the restaurants uh, not being as active as they they used to be in the past and that is also something which farmers need to uh, to adapt to um, and and we see that really for small-scale farmers it's a it's a big challenge to tally their production to this change in demand and and often um, they have to be uh, become more specialized in order to do that i see that investments are very important in order to allow small farmers to uh, to make these uh, specializations they need technical 
assistance. They need to manage uh, multiple contacts uh, for their marketing activities because they still need, and they will always need diversified production for risk uh, management purposes on their small farms. Um, and for this, I think it's very important that uh, meaningful services are arranged in the uh, in groups or associations and cooperatives, mainly for the marketing of, of their produce. And, and this is also why EFID is working uh, with very strong emphasis on strengthening these farmer groups and making sure that they are providing useful services to their members. Um, and at the same time, we think that it's very important that small farmers are using information and communication technologies to their advantage, mainly for accessing technical assistance, but also for marketing activities and also for accessing financial services. And uh, just for the, for the TA, I'd like to remind you that in Northeast Brazil, which is where the area where EFAD is working in Brazil, where we have something like 2 million small-scale farms, only about 8% of the farmers are getting technical assistance services. So 92% are not getting an extensionist any time, never. And, and this is really important. And I think this can only be overcome with uh, ICT, with digitalization of services. And I think that's also very important to, to make investments in that area. Thank you very much. Right. Thank you, Klaus. I think, I mean, that was a really interesting perspective in you know, bringing to the fore the issue that it's not just about small scale farmers tackling their own poverty or rural poverty, but in fact, taking a much broader sense about the wider societal benefits and, and services that, that, that they're offering. And uh, so I think that's a really interesting uh, theme for us to pick up a little bit, a little bit more. Um, Hazel, let me uh, move to you and uh, get you to introduce yourself and hear some of your opening perspectives. Yes, uh, thank you very much, Jim, and thank you for the opportunity of being here today. My name is Eitur. I am from, I am Brazilian, but I'm currently living in the Netherlands, and uh, I have been working with family farmers in Brazil for more than 10 years, but in the southeast uh, region of Brazil. And uh, I have a PhD in soil science and plant nutrition and uh, production ecology and resource conservation in Warningen and Universidade Federal de Viçosa in Brazil, so both in the Netherlands and Brazil. And uh, yeah, I would like to, to start saying, like, because I, I said family farming and uh, the debate now today, we are using the term smallholder farming. And in Latin America, this I think this is a very important debate. And for us, the concept of family farmers is very important and is different than the concept of smallholder farmers. But of course, there are many overlaps. Anyway, maybe I will use these two words as synonyms, although they are not. <laughs> um, so I would like to start saying, uh, for me, one of the biggest challenges for family farmers is the pejorative view that society in general has on family farming or smallholder farming, seeing it as an antiquated way of doing agriculture or old-fashioned way that is inefficient, that is related to poverty and uh, related to little knowledge and to little culture and so on. And this has serious consequences for education, for extension services, for credits and for policies that are totally not directed and adapted to the reality and the needs of family farmers. As uh, Klaus was saying, for instance, extension services are not uh, reaching family farmers uh, many times. And when they reach also, Many times they have power relations, that there are power relations behind that maybe uh, avoid that farmers get the best advice. And uh, so I think this is one of the biggest challenges. Uh, 
But actually what we see, uh, we don't, if we check the data and the evidence, we don't see uh, all these pejorative uh, views uh, in, in reality, because for instance, according to the census, uh, the agricultural census in Brazil, it's a bit old, this data from 2006, but I think it's still valid. Uh, family farmers, they occupy 25% of the land in Brazil. So 75% is for non-family farmers and 25 for family farmers. And still they produce 39, almost 40% of the total agricultural value in the country. So both exports and import, but both ex for exportations and importation. So with 25%, they reach 39 of the total agricultural value. And that doesn't seem so inefficient to me. And, um, and, I, and uh, I would like also to say that I, I do see pathways forward and I do see a lot of opportunities as well. And I would like to highlight three main things that I think are really important. And of course, we can debate more uh, during the session. So for me, one of the things is policies. So public policies, including access to land, access to extension services, access to credits and so on. And we have great examples in Brazil of policies that worked out pretty well. For instance, the PNI and the PA. I can talk more about these policies if uh, you have questions or, or you want to debate more about this, but these have been quite successful. The second thing is to have strong social organizations working together. So including farmers organizations, such as unions and associatives, because that gives power and voice to farmers and, and also gives them the chance to organize themselves and to develop together with a great variety of stakeholders like scientists and technicians uh, uh, to, to, yeah, to really develop appropriate strategies that are adapted to the local reality. And finally, the third thing is the role of women because I think this, this has been emerging now, this debate, and it's so important. And we have some research, uh, not, not my research, but from a group that I was part of. They had these cadernitas agroecologicas. So they would give this to the families and they would ask the woman of the family to write down everything she produced, but was not sold. Just produced or, and consumed within the family or traded with other families. And they amount and they monet, they they put economic value to each of these products. And in the end, the woman is producing so much, almost as much as the coffee that is being sold. So this is so important. And then many times we present as a solution to just have more cash inflow, but that's quite simplistic because there are other things related to economic issues that we need to tackle. So thank you. Thank you, Hater. Really, really interesting topics. I could see lots of heads nodding there, so I'm sure we'll come back to some of these, these things. Uh, Maya, let me, let me turn to you, and I'm sure you're going to take us back to a bit of a systems perspective on all of this as well, given, given your background. But uh, how do you see some of these issues that we've, we've started to raise? And please yeah, don't thank introduce yourself. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you, James. So my name is Maya Peltola, and uh, I'm an anthropologist, but I've been working the intersection of business and public sector and private and public sector for the last uh, almost 20 years. Uh, I'm IFAD country director for Guyana, Haiti and the Dominican Republic and I'm based in the IFAD sub-regional hub in Panama, in Panama City. And, uh, and yes, um, 
actually, I want to bring to the table two examples of really concrete action with smallholder or small-scale farmers and, and, and that relates also to the food systems. And, and I think both of these uh, examples um, illustrate quite well how from EFED side, we try to work with smallholders and producers and also these market women who tend to come from the same families and, and the same rural households and thus belong to the same kind of rural ecosystem. So when actually when we're talking about smallholders or, or, or family farmers, where I think we should be actually talking about a, about a bigger group of people. And now one of my examples comes from Haiti and the other one from Guyana or former British Guyana. And in both countries, we're in the midst of co-designing together with stakeholders and, and of course with the, with the governments, uh, actions that, that can bring about sustainable rural uh, transformation. And, and as you said, uh, Jim, at the very beginning of this session, everything starts from understanding the diversity and the context of, of these people and recognizing that you must not use the same approach uh, everywhere. And as you might have guessed, uh, the, the situation of rural women and men in these contexts and these countries is very different. In Haiti, on one hand, we have a country with protracted crisis, which has pushed small farmers to uh, extreme vulnerability and, and food security. Uh, the country sits on a hurricane belt and deforestation and erosion are major uh, problems because of the soil has degraded in, in, in many of these uh, farmlands. And, uh, and thus in Haiti, what IFAD is doing is uh, that we're um, financing agroforestry. So that's linking sustainable farming practices together with, uh, with reforestry, reforesting practices. And also uh, we have for the last 15 years been financing small scale irrigation systems, which bring uh, the possibility of, um, of, uh, of, of having better uh, use of resources, of especially of, of water resources, to the to the rural uh, women and men. And uh, but now our newest financing in Haiti will be geared towards a slightly different environment. And I want to highlight this here because it it makes actually much much sense on a Caribbean island. So we'll be financing uh, a project in the coastal communities and the world underwater. Uh, so the new inclusive uh, blue economy project seeks to transform the way rural coastal communities manage their resources and the, and the systemic change or, the, or the, the change in the mindset behind this is, is that we're not going uh, to, to finance a more traditional uh, artisanal fisheries uh, project, but we will try to make the marine, marine conservation in these areas a source of sustained income. Now, in looking ahead, these revenues may come from, for example, small-scale fisheries. They may come also from aquaculture, production of sea moss or seaweed, uh, blue forests, or that would say that would be uh, mangrove conservation, and also ecotourism. And what is really key here to understand is that these communities really have to to lead the journey, and they have to understand how the coastal ecosystem works. What is their um, their role also in maintaining it and, and improving those, those resources. And also to hold uh, accountable those who do harm and overexploit these resources. And, and uh, really the only, lo only local ownership will, be, uh, will contribute to sustained results.
Uh, on the other hand, we have Guyana, which, uh, which is, as you know, a country in crossroads uh, where oil and gas money has started already to flow to, to the um, uh, US-based natural resources fund. Guyana is the only country in the Latin America uh, region uh, which is actually predicting a rise in its uh, in its um, uh, uh, in its uh, income, national income, even in the midst of COVID. And in Guyana, the whole food system is in transformation. We have uh, on on the one hand, we have the Amerindia communities uh, where they they. Um, uh, use a lot of meat and 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 uh, tubercles, and but also we in Guyana we have the 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 country which is facing the triple burden of malnutrition. So we have undernutrition, we have micronutrient deficiencies, and also at the same time, a significant part of the population uh, who is struggling with over overweight and and obesity. And over 70% of these deaths in Guyana are caused by uh, non-communicable diseases, most of which are linked to unhealthy diets and lifestyles and constitute a major economic burden also for the country. So here in Guyana, we are building on the identified demand uh, in the country. We have identified this, this demand by, uh, by having uh, multiple rounds of stakeholder consultations. Uh, so there, IFAD plans to work together with the government to support enhanced food security and healthier food system by building on farm-to-table gastronomy, national tourism, and also uh, taking uh, the, the best advantage out of, of digital tools. So also here in Guyana, uh, small-scale farmers and fisher folk can play a significant role in improving the, the, the major, the, the whole food system in the country. And I, I think that we can all agree that, uh, that food, local food security and sovereignty have become even more significant now in the aftermath of, of COVID-19. And when we learned that, that, uh, that the food staples couldn't be exported, that, uh, that all the borders were closed, et cetera. So I think it's really important also to, uh, to make sure that the right systems are in place for the smallholders and the, and the family farmers in Guyana also to be by, par, part of this, this journey towards a, a, a major transformation in the food system and also towards uh, better food security and sovereignty. So these are two examples from my side and I'm very happy to, um, to be part of this panel and I look forward to the discussion. Over to you, Jim. I think you're on mute, Jim. We, we all have this trouble of remembering to turn our mics back on in this virtual world. Um, no, thank you, Mary. That's, I mean, I mean, really interesting. And I think it was, it was particularly significant to hear on one hand talking about what's the role of family farms coming back to you, or small scale farmers in terms of um, environmental protection and thinking about their incomes coming from completely different, different sources than perhaps we're used to and also coming back to this whole triple burden story about some of the bigger challenges that are gonna face society around that and the role of uh, family farming and small scale agriculture in that. So we'll certainly come back to, to some of those points that you have raised. So um, Alejandra, um, what would you like to add to what you've been hearing and what are some of the really important perspectives you see around this story? Yes, well, Jim, first of all, thank you so much for the invitation to be part of this conversation. Um, my name is Alejandra Arce. I'm based in Lima. 
I am an associate scientist at the International Potato Center with Andean Initiative. Uh, my background is in ecology, then I pursued my PhD in agroecology, and uh, I've been thrilled to actually in other countries that are represented here in this conversation, Brazil, Colombia, um, even Haiti, uh, I've had the pleasure to actually interact with smallholder farmers and local NGOs who are doing really hard work there. And uh, right now, uh, I work with Andean Initiative since last year. Andean Initiative is a new regional platform. It represents uh, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, and Bolivia. And I will be referring mostly to the context above 1500 meters above sea level across the Andes. And, um, and I would like to, to highlight that in the small scale farming context that we are um, developing our strategy with, our 2020-2030 strategy, there are like three themes that I would like to highlight. Agrobiodiversity and differentiated domestic market systems agroecological regeneration and intensification in already strained landscapes, food systems, especially food sheds at subnational local scales, and two cross-cutting issues, which are youth. I would argue that youth are a moving target. The rural urban dynamics, I think we are we have been working for a long time with this, with this dichotomy of rural and urban. And right now what we are seeing is uh, the contexts are very dynamic. And also as Aitor mentioned, the, the gender, the gender issue. Um, I think that we, we could probably agree in this panel that there are big trends across Latin America that have resulted in a number of reports regarding the fe feminization of agriculture, the so-called permanent uh, male exodus, and also youth, um, the abandonment of, of fields, abandonment of small-scale agriculture, which in the context of the Andes, I would argue is mostly uh, small-scale farming under five hectares, just based on Peru's figures, about 80% of, um, of family farming is under five hectares. We actually have a very, very good typology that was done uh, in 2017 by, by FAO. And according to this typology, fa family farming is up to 10 hectares in the context of, of Peru, which is also arguable, applicable in contexts like Bolivia and Ecuador. And also what I would like to, I would like to make the nexus with a couple of things that Klaus mentioned, which is the markets and specifically differentiated markets. I think that we have some good lessons learned in the Andes. There is no one size fits all for small, for small scale farming. Um, at the very, uh, at the micro scale, there are experiences with value chains. However, we have learned that these value chain approaches 
uh, of towards market integration of small scale farmers uh, usually don't reach the most vulnerable households. Uh, usually most resourceful households already become part of these interventions. So that is, that is still uh, a challenge. Uh, at the International Potato Center, uh, we have for a long time had these experiences specifically in, on the potato. But as I mentioned earlier, agrobiodiversity is one of the comparative advantages of Andean small-scale farmers. Mm -hmm. I think before uh, this entering the, the panel with Jim, we, we were talking briefly about, well, you know, what makes small-scale agriculture in Latin America? I mean, how is it different? Is it comparable to Africa or Asia? And for sure it is not. We do not have like a critical mass of, of small-scale farmers as in, as, in, as in Asia, where with population densities, of just farmers and consumers in urban areas are, are huge. But what I think would differentiate Indian smallholders and family farmers, so maybe smallholders is less than two hectares for us, but I will refer uh, just to, to in general farmers under five, five hectares. Um, they, they are um, managing large uh, numbers of cultivars of different roots and tubers, but also fruits. We are conducting a study right now to um, actually do research on the nutritional content of many, many neglected underutilized Andean species, which are not necessarily just roots and tubers. So I would actually say that there are many research questions that we're tackling with, like the linkages with nutrition, also the market linkages, what market approaches work, in which context and which do not. And, but I would actually just uh, finish with a, another, um, another item that Klaus mentioned with his extension services. In the Peruvian context, which is what I am uh, more familiar with at this moment, we know that there is a vast, there's a huge gap. Uh, and digital extension is actually being conducted by even startups. So this, this de demand in the small scale farming sector has actually motivated many initiatives, even from many young people, startups, creating digital advisory services focused in agroclimatic agro prediction, but most interestingly, and especially during COVID, um, the kinds of services that uh, help farmers make connections with consumers at the local food systems level. And so I think I would just leave it there to leave some room for the discussion. Uh, I, I see incredible challenges. Uh, also, we can't discuss Moscow uh, agriculture and specifically family par family farmers in the Andes without addressing just social inequity period that uh, permeates Peruvian society. Uh, we have seen in Peru the outcome, the first results of the COVID pandemic and um, despite the favorable macro indicators that Peru has seen in the last two decades, 
the stark social reality in urban and rural areas became plain and clear. So I will leave it there. Well, uh, we'll come back to those thoughts. Look, it was a really interesting introduction from everybody. And one of the things that strikes me is, is really hearing somewhat of a reframing of the role of small-scale agriculture into wider societal problems and how you understand these linkages in a whole range of different dimensions. Um, I think it'll be interesting for us to move on to perhaps what are some of the policy implications of that. But before we do that, I'm wondering if we could have a, a little bit more of a discussion around the diversity of small older or family households. So, I mean, I can imagine you have those that are becoming more commercial, uh, earning most of their income from a, a, a commercial or largely commercial operation. You've got some that have got a very mixed income where farming's just a very small part of what their incomes are. You've got others that are still holding onto a small bit of land almost as a, as a pension or a, a security and only used in a marginal way. You've got other households that are still in a in a very semi-subsistence way and in a, in a very sort of a marginal context. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can just reflect on how you see these different groups. Do we need to understand a better sort of categorization and what are some of the implications of that for policy? But maybe Klaus, I could, uh, could start with you know, perhaps some of your reflections on this diversity. Um, yeah, well, I think, I think this diversity um, Jim is, is really a, a key aspect of, of small scale farmers. We have small scale farmers producing all sorts of things and on each farm, we have a great diversity also, not only livestock and, and also crop production, but they are producing very many uh, different types of crops. And even within each crop, often they are producing different varieties because they know that um, if the rain doesn't come, they have to have another variety of say maize or sorghum in order to be able to produce other, uh, to, to still have a, a meaningful production and in order to space out the production over time. There are many reasons, uh, main one is risk uh, for this diversity. And I think this is really one of the key characteristics and strengths that small scale farmers have. And for which reason they should never emulate um, the mechanized large scale farming, even though of course efficiency is also really important for them. There's never been an abundance of labor for, for small-scale farmers. I also see this uh, question on the, uh, on the chat here uh, asking about the lack of labor affecting the viability of family farming, especially with the exodus of youth. That's, of course, a huge issue. And, and it's always been an issue. And smallholder farmers need to always make sure that they are employing their time meaningfully and gainfully um, because there is no excess labor available, even though some people have, have the impression that people in, in, in the rural areas, they don't really uh, do that much. They, they're doing as much as they can. They're using all their, uh, their available daylight hours uh, in order to be, uh, to be gainfully employed, especially women. It's really this, I think that's a, an important element that, that Hafer was mentioning here um, uh, about the, uh, the importance that, that women play uh, in, in this whole production cycle. And that's also involving the post-production, uh, small-scale processing and so on, which is going on. Um, so I think this diversity really is, is part of the strength and any modernization efforts uh, in family farming need to take that strongly into account. Thank you. Would, would one of you like to jump into this discussion about trying to understand the diversity of farming households? Yes, I would like to, to add a couple of, of comments. And 
And indeed, um, I think when you, especially, it gets especially interesting when you, when you uh, look at the subnational, at the provincial and local levels, because while we do see these patterns, for instance, in youth migration, I will get back to the diversity of, of, of smallholder farmers as well. But um, you know, some in some provinces here in Peru, there's intermittent migration. So, you know, youth can leave and then they'll go back for like for the potato harvest. So it's not like cut and dry. It's not like all across the Andes, the dynamics are the same. And for sure, uh, in the Andes, due to the vertical farming, like vertical archipelagos, it's incredibly diverse uh, just at the landscape, but also the social and cultural dynamics. And that makes the, this small-scale agriculture very um, heterogeneous. And as I mentioned earlier, not all small-scale farmers are the same. There are, even within communities, there are stark disparities between households. We have the experience that I mentioned earlier. It was actually an experience with PepsiCo and Frito-Lay. It was a very um, well-intended intervention, but it really did not work out. And there was a publication about this by Penn State University in the United States, how these interventions, uh, I mean, SIF also invested quite a bit um, in participating in this collaboration with the intention of really including the most vulnerable households. But what this study discovered following the, this value chain approach was that it just, it reached maybe up to 30% of the community and that 30% were already most resourceful households. So there are pre-existing conditions that smallholders must meet in order to even participate in these interventions. So I think just keeping that in mind. And also going back to women, feminization, again, it's not cut and dry. Uh, what we are seeing across Andean communities is that now uh, households like women and men are migrating and especially young women. Young women have no interest to remain in, in, on the field. They are uh, seeking jobs in, in Lima, especially in precarious conditions. But uh, if, the, if the household is more, more resourceful, they can actually afford to maybe pay for a technical school in a nearby uh, city. So the dynamics are, are, are tricky. And here again, I would say that how to make uh, agriculture attractive like what kinds of incentives are going to lead young people to look at farming differently? Because I think as Ater might have said, is it's not, um, there is a cultural, there's cultural baggage against being a farmer. You know, it's not seen as, as, a, as, a, as a prestigious activity. Uh, farmers, even while they're aging, the average age now in the end is, is is uh, 55 years old. The demographics are not uh, in favor of the future of small-scale agriculture. So I would say that it's extremely urgent to really have tailored policies and programs that considering heterogeneous environments mm -hmm. and, and capacities, even at the, at the land, at the soil 
soil level. I mean, we, we are seeing some fragile environments now, um, depleted soils. So we have physical, biophysical limitations as well. So there are many very, uh, there are many parameters to keep in mind, but I would also say that there are some really interesting initiatives uh, happening right now with young people, um, small scale agro-industries adding value to underutilized and neglected agrobiodiversity, which also has ecosystem services. Right, thank, thank you, Alejandra. I mean, just picking up on that one, Milena, do you have some thoughts about the degree to which households are now matching farm income with off-farm income and the implications of, of that? So, you know, whether it's labouring, whether it's remittances, you know, we've talked a lot about people sort of migrating and but still keeping links with the land. So what's in terms of that sort of household um, economic diversification and what do you think of the implications of that? And maybe, Haytor, you'd also like to, to pick up on this theme. Yes, uh, first of all, relating to the last questions, I, I want to, to add as well that just the criteria of the size uh, is not sufficient to define small scale agriculture. The, because the, and as I ate or say in Latin America, we sometimes speak about uh, farming, uh, familiar farming and small scale agriculture. Uh, but is, this is because as well, there were, uh, this has to be with the reproduction and the social uh, reproduction and, and continue to have better policies. I think uh, we have to do a, a better uh, effort uh, to improve the, the definition at, at the technical and the theoretical and political level to understand this, this uh, the, uh, difference because that has to do as well with the difference in the income and in the different uh, ways they, they work. And um, despite the increase of uh, the income diversification and, and the increase in the non-agricultural income, what we can see is that normally agriculture continues to be the main activity uh, at the economic uh, level for a small scale farming in Latin America and a main source of their income that have like two, two points of, of view. And at one point they're diversified, but to be attached for agriculture made them somehow like more vulnerable as well, because they depend of non-stable and formal markets and the prices that are very irregular. And uh, what, as, what we can see is that um, they specialize somehow in, in agriculture uh, and the, the non-agriculture income increase, but is not like the, the main. Uh, in the, the way that, that you ask about the migration and in countries like uh, Colombia and Alejandra knows more than me, but, but Peru in their conflict years, the migrations of, of men to the urban uh, areas have as well like to, to, uh, to ways or of, of see that. Uh, in one point, that is a way to diversify the economic and household incomes because they have the, the um, returns of money from the uh, urban works, but as well this has to do with the feminization. 
And other um, phenomena that we can see is that the young are not staying in the rural areas and they don't want, in generally, it's, it's, it's difficult to generalize in, in this, uh, in this uh, uh, kind of, of, of uh, works, but in general, the young does, don't want to stay in the rural areas because they don't see a lot of opportunities they have like less uh, scholar years, the opportunity to go to the universities, to have better jobs, better incomes are normally in, in, the, in the cities. Um, that I, I think in this way, uh, development alternative outside the, the agricultural sector should be so to, to encourage the diversification of, of local uh, in economies and as well like see other opportunities in the rural areas as, as tourism, uh, 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 thing like uh, artesanías, I don't know how to say it in, in, in English, uh, handcraft, yeah. uh, handcraft, um, like a more uh, agroecological and specialized agriculture is for sure an, an opportunities. But uh, I think that have a lot to do as well that we have a lack uh, in data and information about this kind of, of, of farmers. And I think besides Brazil, Brazil have a, a very well census like uh, continuously, the other country doesn't have this kind of data and then we have a lack of information right. in the kind of diversification and income diversification. Uh, but yes, I, I will leave it like. Right, thank you, Melina. I'll, um, we'll, we'll come back to some of those points. I mean, Hater, how do you how do you see this issue about household diversification and economic diversification and some of the implications of that for, for household strategies and the implications on farming? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I think this, of course, is a very relevant issue. And from a scientific perspective, we work a lot with farm typologies and the typologies help to map the different groups, although many times we don't have really clear cut groups, but rather a gradient of farms but it helps, the typology helps a lot to unravel these different characteristics and to develop specific strategies for different types of farms. So I think this is one uh, very important thing. We have, I have some research on that uh, I can share if you, if you like. And, uh, and also the second thing I would like to say is about the question on labor, because we talk about uh, the lack of labor. And I think this is totally relevant and really important issue. And for instance, when we go to education, education plays a central role because the youth is the next generation and how the youth is being educated. In regular schools, when they go to regular schools in the city, they are kind of uh, dominated by this pejorative view on family farming as something old fashioned and not efficient and bad and associated with poverty and so on, as I was saying. And then uh, we have, for instance, in, in, in our work, the experience of the rural schools. And in these rural schools, uh, the students, they can learn like the regular courses of mathematics and chemistry and so on, but they also learn about agriculture and to value agriculture. 
and uh, and also they have an alternancy scheme that they can stay 15 days in the school and 15 days with their families working and then this kind of education really opens for many really open for many possibilities so this the student the, the the young farmer can choose whether to continue with farming with a back with a with a good educational background that values this kind of work or if he wants to go to the city and become a professional in other areas but for sure sensitive for the issues of family farming so i think this is is very important and then just to finalize on one on the one hand we have this problem with labor but on the other hand we have millions or or, or thousands i would say even millions of landless farmers people that want to farm but don't have land so you know how do we talk about lack of labor I mean, I think, of course, it's important, but at the same time, we have tons of people that want to work but don't have land. And what is our government, what, what the authorities are doing to provide access to land and agrarian reform, which is a central issue in Latin America and, and in Brazil? Thank you, Hector. I mean, Maya, would you, would you like to jump into this sort of story about agrarian reform? And there was a question here in the panel about what sort of land consolidation is needed. So if you're going to you know, incentivize agriculture, if you like, basically people need to make enough money out of it. So what's needed in terms of land size or prices um, or greater efficiency to actually make smaller scale farming, you know, profitable enough for, for a younger generation to really be interested in it? I think I think uh, the land consolidation is there. I mean, it, th this is a thing that that we've been seeing um, in, in in many countries. And uh, well, when the youth and and when people uh, migrate from the from the rural areas, then there are fewer people in the rural areas. So there 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 the the land um, gets to fewer fewer um, hands. And of course, in in some countries, there is a major issue with also with land grabbing and uh, and and with uh, people coming from and companies coming also from from outside of the of the traditional rural rural areas and 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 uh, and wanting to access these lands for <clears throat> more bigger scale agriculture but i think also i mean this this really uh, boils down to the to the people doing the job so really the the, the, the rural women and and men and <clears throat> i was just uh, um reading the, the, the conversation in the chat. Uh, and I see Maya from Wageningen University also saying, uh, I mean, raising the same issues that, that we in IFAD have, have seen. IFAD actually has been working with rural youth and especially trying to kind of reverse uh, this, this rural exodus for, for quite a while, for at least for 10 years <clears throat> or even more. And uh, now, uh, starting first from Latin America, and now this is a, a major issue also in, in other regions. And, and from our talks and uh, from our consultations with, with rural youth, which I mean, there have been really many, um, there are basically three things that, that the rural youth usually uh, want to highlight. <clears throat> of course, I mean, um, there's a stigma, but there are three things. If, if they are able to have a flexible um, way of life in terms of, of uh, being to able to stay part of their uh, of their month in in the in a city or in in a nearby village, and then part in the in the rural area, <clears throat> if they can uh, juggle between their their um, 
work and uh, like in, in their, their salaried work and their um, rural living. And, and if they are, can also juggle with, uh, uh, with, um, um, with their studies, uh, that's, that's a plus. Then the second thing that, that usually rural youth also always <clears throat> remind us of, I'm sorry, is the connectivity. So roads, but also internet connectivity, because now, especially internet co connectivity in the rural villages gives them or opens them the world and op opens it also um, options for, for having uh, incomes from off-farm activities. So for example, in the Dominican Republic, I've spoken to people who come, I mean, youth, youth who come from the, or, or young adults who come from the rural areas, they've gone to Santo Domingo or somewhere nearby to, uh, to, they went to the university or technical university. So in some cases, they even have a law degree, but they want to stay in the, in the, in the rural areas. They, they still want to work the land also. So what they are saying that, well, if I have connectivity, if I can do the, the lawyer's work also, which is kind of, kind of desk work, if I can do it also from my rural village, that would be an, an, an option for me because then I can actually um, do the both things that I love because it's, it's not always that they don't love the working working uh, the, the land and, and, and uh, raising cattle and, and doing the cultivation. A third thing is the term uh, the security, which in, in countries uh, such as Colombia and also Central, Central America is a major issue. One major region, reason why, why people uh, and youngsters are, are migrating from the rural areas is actually not because they don't want or they wouldn't want to be involved in agriculture, but it's because of the security issue. And, and there, there, there we have a major thing where we have to work also with the ministries of, of, uh, of course, ministries of, of defense, ministry of public security. And, and I think this is a very um, specific uh, dynamic what is happening in, in especially in some countries of Latin America which you don't see so much in uh, rural Asia for example or in rural Africa and I think this is this is a major issue that has to be tackled also in the more systemic level uh, the, the terms of insecurity but again I mean uh, I think there are spaces and there are possibilities to to uh, to give or to build those uh, the, those uh, dynamics and those policies for uh, for rural youth also to be continuing uh, engaged with them um, with uh, with with their rural um, areas and with production uh, one thing I'd like to still highlight is is that we actually um, during the, the the worst COVID-19 uh, pandemic and lockdown in, in the Dominican Republic, we held a hackathon, or we were part of a, of a, of a bigger uh, organization of a, of a hackathon to seek um, novel uh, things, how to understand, or how to uh, support uh, small scale holders and the small scale producers in, in the Dominican Republic in, uh, in a situation where they actually didn't have access to the markets. And, and the majority of the solutions that were proposed and actually also one of the, one of the solutions that got selected, um, they, had a, a, they, they were built on, on like digital systems. So I think the digital uh, landscape and a digital platform, for example, to uh, for contactless delivery and and to 
uh, link the, the producer directly with the users. I think uh, this, this digital revolution is already um, yeah, so I was just about to sort of move on and try and draw it into some sort of policy and strategy implications. And I mean, really, really interesting to, to hear what you were all, all saying. I guess I'm picking up sort of three, uh, three big messages in, in how to think about going forward from you. I think the first one is this sort of really understanding the wider societal benefits from family farming or small scale agriculture both in terms of the environmental uh, role in sort of protecting overall ecosystems and being land custodians alongside trying to create a far more nutritious food system. The second one is how do you then attract um, uh, youth into the, into the system? How do you make it much more profitable, interesting, dynamic and so on? And I guess thirdly, a strategy of how do you tackle the you know, those being left behind or those that are still in in areas of, of poverty and extreme inequality and how do you how do you make sure you pick up those that are that are really being left behind so i guess with that sort of thinking and some of the framing that you've already given where are we at from a policy perspective and tackling these issues and taking the agenda forward is it about is it about government policy does it fundamentally require government policy is it sort of directions that are going to unfold anywhere? Is it about the private sector? What are the what are the sort of strategies for taking us forward? And what's the role of, of government policy in all of this? I can see you sort of starting to get a little bit eager on your seat there, Klaus. So why don't we start with you? Uh, it's just that I'm slipping forward on my seat. <laughs> oh, sorry if I got the but wrong. I'm, I'm happy to take there, it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy to take it because I, I think those are really key questions. And it's, it's very good that we kind of get our heads together to, to see yeah. how we can contribute to the answers. Um, I really think that with these ecosystem services that agriculture, smallholder farming and family farming is providing, um, we, we are getting to a kind of shift in the way in which uh, public policy is being uh, looked at for this sector. It's always been uh, supporting these uh, farmers because they are poor. And of course, we, we agree that very many of them are poor. In fact, it's, it's the majority of the world's poor people are involved in farming. And there's this huge paradox of why people who are producing food actually are uh, uh, experiencing hunger and poverty. Um, and and it's, it's very important to have this. But I think it's also very important to channel this support, um, both in conditional transfer payments and also in uh, support to the productive environment to these farmers to a large extent also because they are the ones who are taking good care of the ecosystem of biodiversity and of uh, a safe and healthy environment for us all. So this is, I think, very important uh, that also in Latin America, we are making that switch and that therefore payment for ecosystem services also becoming part of public policies here. And in terms of the youth engagement, which I also think is, is obviously very important uh, in order to have a dynamism and in order to have innovative ideas in, in this whole transition. Um, I see the main reason for that or the, the main uh, 
challenge for that in education and making sure that there is good education systems and specialized education available for youth so that they can really uh, learn about the, the best ways of uh, contributing to, um, to production systems, to marketing systems and the employment of new technologies and all of this. There are very many opportunities and I think it's very often uh, opportunities which can be unlocked by better education. With that, I hand it back to you. And, and just a sense, I mean, to what extent do you see policies across the region heading in this, in this direction, or do you think there's a long way to go? I see that there are, uh, there are many um, <clears throat> public policies and also projects being now developed with that in mind, uh, addressing, uh, for example, climate change issues and addressing um, biodiversity through more diverse productive systems, for example, agroforestry systems. That's, those are very important and they, they show very clearly that farmers are also being supported um, in order to make these systems work to provide sustainable production systems, which can, which can last and which can also help to regenerate a lot of the degraded areas which we have. Great, thank, thank you. Who'd, who'd like to follow up on, on Klaus's comments? Peter. Yeah, thank you. Uh, also, like these are maybe final words because we are, uh, yeah. yeah, we are, uh, we have to leave. But uh, yeah, I just would like to mention two other policies: the PNI, the public, the national school feeding program. This is so important. It it states that thirty percent of the food uh, that goes to the fundamental and, and secondary schools should come from family farmers, and that is a great way. To, to enable farmers to sell their products for a fair price. Mm -hmm. So this, for instance, has been working really good in Brazil and also the PA, the National Program of, of Food Acquisition. And now, for instance, there is a, there, it's going on an initiative, uh, a joint initiative of Universidade Federal de Viçosa and farmers organizations and the government to, to get to purchase a large quantity of food from farmers, from local farmers, family farmers, and then provide this food to hospitals and uh, schools and so on. So that's, these are very, very important um, public policies. But then I would like to finalize saying that for developing appropriate policies, we also need a strong social basis. And then I go back to my first, uh, to one of my first sentences, stating the importance of the organizations, farmers' organizations, cooperatives, unions, and, and, and because these organizations allow a bottom-up process to force governments to, to, to provide and to develop the right policies. And then just to the final word, I think the ecosystem services approach is very crucial in this context. As you said, one of the key messages here that family farmers provide not only food, but many other benefits that can also be called ecosystem services. And apart from that, we have also the agroecological movement in Brazil. And this agroecological movement is very important to work with all these issues, gender, marketing, valuing the lifestyle of family farmers and increasing income and so on. And Brazil was the first country in the world to have a national policy for, agri for agroecology. And that of course was a bit dismantled by the current government, but we hope that we can keep developing this forward and improving the livelihoods of rural people. Thank you. Great, why don't I um, 
when I go to Milena and Alejandro and then Maya come back to you and we just sort of each each get a bit of a perspective on ways forward and what are some of the policy policy implications as you see it. Maybe I wanted to add what Klaus and, and Aitor said um, in remiss. We made a study that made recommendations on the need of, of to improve uh, more intersectoral and territorial dynamics for family farming and small agricultural farming. And as well to think beyond the gateway to rural poverty and build policies and actions with a broader focus that includes rural development and food security policies that are more sustainable. For sure, access to uh, scholars, university extensions, uh, and, and technical assistance is important, but, uh, but we have to ask which kind of extension service uh, do we really need to have more sustainable crops and, and protection of biodiversity? Uh, mostly in our countries that are very uh, biodiversity uh, rich. And I think it's not enough to recognize the heterogeneity, uh, but is, there is a need to, to change the design of, of policies. In Latin America, we have a, a lot of difference in, in rural policies and small scale farmers policies. Uh, some, some countries as, as Brazil are more uh, forward, some others like in, in Central uh, America and, and in Colombia itself, I like uh, not that and, and, this, and this point, uh, but for sure this requires adjustment in programs and action due during the implementation and, and process. And this, I, I come back to my comment that this need uh, to improve databases and standardized methodologies and source of information of family farming and small scale agriculture in Latin America is very important to have uh, better, better uh, policies. And there is a need as well to improve cross-sectoral and, and territorial dynamics to better understand the drivers of, of change. And I think we, we have to start looking back what they are doing we, to learn about the traditional ways of cropping, agroecology, learn from them. Uh, they have a lot of, of strategies for uh, coping to climate change, to adapt to climate change. And maybe the extensions programs and the policy itself have to start to look a, a, more than deep what, what they are already doing or historical have done uh, to, to cope uh, with these um, uh, problems and, and challenges. And for sure, we have to encourage more sustainable production system to reduce cost and to reduce uh, to the reduction of external inputs such as seeds and, and agrochemicals. Uh, and the policies to to access to to waters, technical service, schoolings, and rural extensions have to have that that in in account. Yeah. And I I want to to come back to my before um, comment about the Jones and the, because you and the public as well react. It's for sure that the Jones doesn't want to go 
from the rural uh, areas uh, just because they don't want to be a part in the agricultural systems, but because they don't have the conditions to live uh, there and stay in, in the same way. And I think they have the potential to lead these uh, new ways of cropping, new ways of uh, uh, work with more sustainable production systems, a more agroecological way of, of crops and, and farmings and ecological tourism as well. They have the potential if they have the conditions to, to stay right. there right. With, with the tools that they may have in the rural, in their urban areas. Thank you, Elaine. Really, some very good points there. Um, Alejandro, uh, some some closing thoughts from your your side, particularly around perhaps some of the policy implications yes. of what we've been talking about. So much comes to mind. It's been such a rich uh, conversation, and I guess I'll just structure my last comments into research for development challenges, as we see it from Andy Initiative um, priorities in terms of research and policy. And lastly, um, coming back to what are the conditions for young people uh, for the next generation of small-scale uh, farmers in the Andes and beyond. And as far as research for development challenges, I think if, if I could illustrate the point with a last publication in Nature, this was a global review of all the research and how this research informed policy and how it did not serve, in most cases, smallholder farmers. So many of us are in research, are in science, are development professionals, and we are claiming that we are making a difference in smallholders' lives. And we are actually not, we would like to, but we're actually not, um, we're not reaching this goal. So that's definitely a challenge. And I can share the link to this nature publication. It was just forwarded to me a few days ago. Uh, I think that was really illustrative. Uh, uh, and in this terms of policy- 2050. This was the series 2050. Yes, the series, yes. exactly. Yes. The series yes. study, yes. Uh, which was how to end hunger, right? Yes. Yes. And, uh, but I would also say that, uh, so first of all, it would be, how to systematize all that we are doing, all the knowledge base that we have. And I think now the challenge and the opportunity is to make all the, to make all the connections at the systemic level. So we're like, I think now making the system level connections. And as far as policy, we don't have to reinvent the, the, the wheel. I do see that even at the, at the municipal level, at the regional levels, there is encouraging, there are encouraging pathways forward. Even at the national level, I'm happy to announce that yesterday, the Peruvian government actually, there was a decree to restructure the Ministry of Agriculture. So now it's not going to be just the Ministry of Agriculture, it's going to be the Ministry of um, Agrarian Development and Family Farming. So I think this is a historical, a historical um, uh, uh, landmark in Peruvian history that actually the, just the phrase family farmer has been officially recognized. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that is, that is one step forward. However, the enabling policies at the national level are not just going to cut it. 
right? There are there are uh, policies even at the municipal level across the Andes that are already working to make um, to uh, to support food systems in such a way that they serve consumers with improved diets, but also smallholder farmers through institutional markets, which Brazil, they have been at the vanguard of these interventions for a long time. But uh, in countries such as Peru, it's still, it's still in the making. And finally, just to wrap up with youth, uh, also, I would like to refer to an experience that I was able to participate in in Brazil. This was many years ago, more than 10 years ago. It's, it was in Santa Catarina in the south of Brazil. It was the Center for Youth, for Rural Youth Development. And it targeted, it really trained young people and it opened, it widened their horizons in agroecology, but also like thinking outside of just strictly agricultural activities. It trained young people in rural environments, in agro-tourism, uh, with great capacity building, with training, and also in um, small scale agro-industries. It taught young people how to add value uh, to, to raw products. So I think there are also really uh, encouraging case studies um, successes, small successes, and we still have the challenge of how do we attain a critical mass of young people. And I think what is fundamental is any kind of rural development intervention needs to come hand in hand with the, the basic education and health conditions in rural environments. I think somebody commented from Wageningen and Milena also made a comment on this that I wanted to to um, to draw from again. Uh, you know, it, it really is. It comes down to to all of the above, Jim. I mean, it yeah. is. It's the state. It's the regional government. It's the private sector. It's researchers like me. It's really all of us. It's like a concerted effort, but really, really, we tailored. Uh, mechanisms, but for young people, it's not gonna cut it to just have an income generating activity. You know, if you don't have basic health yeah. facilities in your community or even basic education, many, many people in the Andes, in Peru and Ecuador and Bolivia, they attain primary education and they have to travel like 50 kilometers to go to secondary school. So this is, I mean, this is the social problematic that we are still, it's still challenging, but I think that we can still make our way into, into uh, maybe at more manageable scales at the municipal level to try to create other opportunities. Thank you. Great, thank, thank you. And uh, finally, back to you, Maya. Thank you, Jim. I hope that we're not going to get kicked out this time. <laughs> I don't think I'll dare this time. Sorry, okay, thanks. A little bit of trouble. <laughs> thanks. No, I'll be short and sweet. Um, uh, I'm an anthropologist, so I, of course, uh, also look at the kind of the cultural um, angle and cultural approach and also the behavioral uh, aspects of, of, uh, of all things I, I, I'm, I'm involved in. But I do recognize that the, the, the human being also is a very economic uh, animal. And we have seen that, that, that economic uh, incentives can also play a big role in terms of, of public policy and in terms of, of behavioral change also in, in communities. 
And here I would just like to bring to the table uh, something that hasn't been um, raised like really um, strong in, in our panel discussion, which is the payment for environmental services. And I think this is a really uh, interesting space. It's a challenging space, I recognize that. But I think there is, a, there is possibility to also to work more towards uh, kind of building up those payment schemes for uh, rural uh, communities to uh, take benefit of the of the of the of their of their uh, like sp specific way of living. So, example, for example, diversification of crops and the conservation of, of crops. It was very much very much uh, emphasized by by my colleague Klaus. Uh, conservation of gene pools, forest cover carbon sequestration through regenerative uh, agriculture and farming practices. These are some of the, of the things that can be used also and, uh, and which can um, also generate income for, for people, which are actually not, they, they don't fall really into the off-farm activity, but they're kind of additional income generating activities in the rural areas. But they do, um, coupled very well with kind of the agroecology approach and also thinking uh, ahead in, in terms of how to incentivize uh, and enable, build an enable, enabling environment for, for rural women and men to, to, and to, be, to continue in the small scale uh, farming and, and, and uh, family farming also. So I'll stop my, uh, I'll stop there. And I just uh, leave this as a, as a food for thought and, uh, and an idea to uh, maybe have another panel discussion on. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, look, thank you all so much. I mean, I found that really, really fascinating. Um, a huge richness of, of uh, points raised, of course, a bit hard to do it justice in the short time. It would be nice if we were doing all of this in the one room and over a glass of wine or something as well. But. Um, I've also had the opportunity today to listen to the um, South Asia and the East Asia panels, and I think it's it's really interesting to hear some of the commonalities, but also some of the huge regional differences, and I think some of the things that can be learned. I guess one of the really big messages I'm picking up from what I've heard from you all is, you know, a sense for a, a, you know, a whole new vision around the, the role of rural areas, family farmers in the context of this sort of thinking about food systems that's happening at the moment. And I think you've all touched on a lot of the elements of that sort of vision, and you've touched on some of the, um, the critical strategies for putting that into place. But now clearly there's a, a need for a lot more work to bring all of that together and to sort of shape the public-private public sort of discourse around how to make all of this, this unfold. So it, you know, it sort of encourages me, I guess, in the sense of the validity of the the Food System Summit for next year in terms of how that can maybe bring to the fore at a, a more political level some of these sorts of issues and maybe give a, give a space for a, the, the work that's happening at a field level to, to get a little bit more sort of political momentum behind it. But, I mean, we probably, we probably should wrap up there. Um, just to say that everything I've just heard this afternoon from you will be feed, feeding into a discussion I have tomorrow afternoon about one of the chapters in the IFAD Rural Development Report. So uh, this has been great from that perspective. We will be writing up what we've heard from you. We'll make sure that the um, recording of this is available on, 
online and uh, we'll, these ideas can feed into the next two sessions of the e-dialogue. And we'd also be really keen to hear from you whether you feel like the sort of, you know, value in trying to keep some sort of space like this going into the future for sharing more ideas and, you know, across regions about the future of uh, small-scale agriculture and uh, a family farming from a, from a food systems perspective. So thank you all again.